Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We finished the Bible last week. The next seven Sundays, we will be looking at Jesus in different gospel passages as we go to Jerusalem, where he dies and rises from the dead. Because his journey is our journey. And we are going to prepare ourselves to participate in that event that we have a life to die to and a life to rise to. As Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. So that's what we're going to do for the next seven weeks. Then we, after Easter, we go back to Genesis and we go through the Bible for round number dos. So as you can see, uh, journey with Jesus from wilderness to garden and what I want to point out to you guys before we launch in is if you look at the first reading, which is this Sunday, Matthew 4, verse 1, I want to point this out. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Then the very last the gospel passage on Easter is going to be John chapter 20, the resurrection of Jesus. And the verse right before John 20 tells us, it's John 19, it tells us that Jesus was buried in a garden, and it was in the garden that Jesus rose from the dead. And Mary, who saw the resurrected Jesus, thought he was the gardener. So John's very into showing us the setting of the resurrection. So it's really neat that we start here with Jesus in the wilderness, and then we go to the garden by the end of this. So that's why the journey with Jesus takes us from wilderness to garden. So Jesus goes into the wilderness. This is where we start the Bible opens up in the garden. There, God created a heaven on earth where God and humans are one and interconnected. It was the garden. However, humanity in their rebellion and sin against God trample the garden into a wilderness. And you see right now, this is just the third chapter of the Bible. The garden is already rotted into this stench of a wilderness. And humans begin killing each other over petty things. And they begin taking multiple wives. There's greed. There's lust. There's murder. There's violence. And the wilderness grows rampant. And the beasts fill the wilderness. So God, as he does, is he meets us there in the wilderness. He takes Israel through the wilderness. Forty years through the wilderness, taking them to the new garden, the promised garden. We've called the promised land, the place that flows with abundance, abundance of fruit, abundance of milk and honey, a place where you don't have to plant trees or crops because the nations that are there before you already planted them for you. You don't have to build cities because there's already cities there. This is a garden for Israel where God was going to be their God and they were going to be his people and they were going to live harmoniously. And as they submit to his kingship, heaven and earth would be resembled there in this garden amongst a world of wilderness. And they were to bring that blessing to the world. As God, you'll see next week in the reading of Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I want to send you to bless the world that your offspring will bless the cursed wilderness. 
God has been in the business of going to the wilderness to bring it back to be the blossoming garden. Of course, this is all review for you because we saw the garden as we closed the Bible last week, didn't we? So you know how it ends and you know where it goes. But now we're going to see Jesus, our deliverer, go there to the wilderness so that we can get to that garden. Israel in the wilderness for 40 years are tested by God to see what's in their heart. And Israel complains that they don't have bread, like Egypt's bakeries. They complain that there's not water, like Egypt's Nile. They complain that Moses is gone for too long on some mount absorbed by some cloud. So they make their own a golden calf to worship it. And they say, let these gods lead us back to Egypt, Aaron. We want the Egyptian gods. And as we look at Israel through the 40 years of the wilderness, we learn that God was able to bring Israel out of Egypt, but he wasn't able to bring Egypt out of Israel. Israel took Egypt with them into the wilderness, and because they were not willing to follow God through the wilderness, God's way, they ended up bringing Egypt to the garden. And as a result, the stench trampled the garden. And Israel's promised garden became a wilderness and a wasteland. The Assyrians take them over, the Babylonians take them over, then the Persians rule them, then the Greeks rule them, then the Romans rule them. And Israel sits there still in the wasteland of the earth because sin stinks. It rots God's fruit. Enter Jesus He's just baptized in chapter 3 of Matthew. He comes out of the baptism and he goes as his first act after being publicly initiated into his ministry. His first act is to go into the wilderness because God begins where we end. God always begins where we end, where we fail. And so Jesus begins his garden creating ministry by going to our failure in the wilderness. We've learned through the biblical story and through our experience, haven't we? Adam and Eve, fantastic garden ruiners. Israel, fantastic garden ruiners. You and me, fantastic garden ruiners. And so praise God that he comes to meet us, not in a garden. Hey, y'all, when you get your act together, come and meet me here. He goes to the wilderness so that he can lead us personally from wilderness to garden. So it's my vision, my goal, my prayer that as we go toward Easter, we would progress meeting Jesus here in the wilderness so that we can then transform and grow as we journey with him that we can find out, wow, we can live in the fruits of God, in the garden of God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And along the way, I died to my old fruit trampling, fruit rotting ways, maggot infested garden ways. I died to that and I've risen again in a new life through the power of God. I hope you guys enjoyed your readings. Those who uh, were able to last week see the schedule and read with 
us very short passages, and the intention is not that you race through them. My pastor makes it like 15 minutes to go through them. Uh, the goal is not that, oh, yay, my devotions are 15 minutes long now. The goal is that there's smaller portions that we don't have to race through so that you can sit and linger and let your soul pray into them. You notice that Genesis 3, there the garden turns to a wilderness to the sin of humanity. Psalm chapter 32, David says, I felt like a dried and withered wilderness until I opened up to God and confessed my sin. Then I felt alive. See, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hid from God and God had to call them out. And even when he called them out, they still said, I don't know what you're talking about. The woman did it. The serpent did it. But the Psalm 32 teaches us that we're not to hide from God. His arms are open. And if we open ourselves up, he will bring the fruits of the garden to our wilderness. And then Romans 5, of course, contrasts Adam with Jesus. The third reading, uh, Adam just brought wilderness to the world. Jesus brings garden to the world. Garden to wilderness, sin. So Adam did. But wilderness to garden is the gospel. And that's what Jesus did. So we see Jesus going to the wilderness. And what we see here, don't miss this. Jesus leads us from wilderness to garden. That's it. So we want to know, so we want to do, look at Jesus as our leader from wilderness to garden. He's the one. And so with him as a leader, and journeying with him, we're now going to look to see what Jesus did in the wilderness so that we know how to follow him through it and not be like Israel to take the wilderness with us into the garden, but to leave the wilderness as Jesus does and enter the garden untarnished. All right? You're tracking. Okay, let's start over. <laughs> So let's look at the verse right before chapter 4. In Matthew 3, verse 16. This is where Jesus' ministry gets launched. He's at the river Jordan. John the baptizer baptizes him. 3.16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold... A voice from heaven said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And you would then expect him to go off in the power of God, healing people, bringing the kingdom of God to earth, and conquering all evil and preaching. And he does that, yes, but there's this big interruption before he does that. This is who I am. And then wilderness, challenging, testing, trying time. And what I've learned from looking at Jesus and thinking hard at my old life, looking back upon the many years, I'm being sarcastic because most of you are like, you are like a a kid. I'm (laughs) 31. Okay. I've had quite some Christian experience for 30 years. And what I've realized is finding out what I'm here for isn't the challenge. And nor was it for Jesus. He comes out of the baptismal waters and God says, 
This is who you are. This is what I want you to do. It was just revealed to him. And sometimes that happens for us. And others of us have to struggle to find it. But the big thing in life isn't figuring out what life is for. It's figuring out how to live life. And so Jesus has this vision where God says, you're my son. Now go bring my blessing, my God into the world. And Jesus doesn't just launch right away into the world and say, boom, this is what I'm here for. This is what I'm going to do. He has to go into the wilderness where he will learn how he is to do what God is calling him to do. I feel like the church today and many Christians that I'm walking with were too much in a rush to get to what God's called us to do that we never pause and ask God, how am I supposed to do this? We're so busy telling people what to believe that we never think about how am I supposed to believe? This is what you should see instead of how am I supposed to see? The true maturation, the true growth process occurs when we go to the desert place, to the dry place, and there we learn how we are to do that which God has called us to do. And this is exactly what Satan does as he comes to Jesus. We see in verse 2, it says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Um, it's actually verse one. So there you go. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is not a temptation about morality. All right. The devil's not trying to get Jesus to break some commandment of God. We often think of temptation as these little enticements where, where Satan's trying to get us to sin. That's here, but there's something so much bigger than Jesus is trying to keep pure and moral here. Satan is presenting to Jesus alternate ways to fulfill the calling he received from God. Satan is offering Jesus alternate ways to fulfill the mission God gave him. Here's your mission. You're my son. Go bless the world. Now the question, how am I to do that? What's my method? And the devil comes to us right then. And if we are not willing to experience the wilderness, we will not even perceive a temptation. And we will just go with the first one that comes. Satan's saying, here's a good method. This is easy. Try it this way. The challenging thing is that we think we have a good end in mind, a good goal. And so then we're willing to sacrifice all the methods, all the means in order to accomplish that end. Have you ever heard the saying, the end justifies the means? And people say that because, look, the mission is so important. We will do whatever it takes to get to that mission. That's devil theology. Because the mission and the method of getting to the mission are the same. The goal we're trying to get to, the way we get to that goal, is the goal. God never calls us to accomplish his purposes through the devil's tactics. And if the way of getting to what God wants us to do harms people or challenges people in a negative way, it is not the way that Jesus walks through the wilderness. It's the devil's temptation to shortcut the wilderness. 
And we have to be so careful that when we understand what God has put us on earth to be and do, we then seek Jesus for how we are to do it. Because in Christianity, it's not just about getting somewhere. It's about who we become and how we do it to get there. So the devil tries to lure Jesus into alternate methods to accomplish his mission. Now, the hard thing here is, and you might have been already catching what I'm saying, the devil does not show up red, tight suit with a tail, holding a pitchfork and smelling of smoke. That would not be tempting to me. I know you, red-suited man. I know your name. Go be gone. Don't even talk to me. The devil does not approach us as the devil. He is far too crafty. He does not come with a name tag. Hello, my name is Lucifer. Satan, the devil, the tormentor, the one who's going to trip you up. Rather, Satan comes to us in the form of of a good idea. Hey, you and I both know what God wants you to do. Here's a great way to accomplish it. So Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness with three good ideas for how to bring humanity from wilderness to garden. So, as we look at these three ideas from the devil, these three temptations, the question is not, will Jesus be moral? The question is, how will Jesus lead us from wilderness to garden? How will he lead us there? We're going to find out the three ways he will not lead us there. So, idea number one, test number one, verse three. The tempter came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. First thing that he does when he comes to Jesus is he recalls the calling that Jesus experienced a verse later or earlier. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Mission received. So the devil comes and says, hey, if you're the son of God, or in other words, you know that God said that whole thing, you're my son thing. He basically said that you're my king who's going to represent heaven on earth. Since that's true, why don't you prove yourself to the world, Jesus? Why don't you get going and show everyone what the true son of God can really look like? And let's start, Jesus, by turning these stones into bread. Now, let's just be clear for a second, because I never, I got the other two temptations, like growing up, I never got this one. I always said, Jesus, you're stupid. If I could turn stones into bread, I would do it. (laughs) Because last I checked, eating bread is not a sin. If that's your thinking, you're on the right track. If Jesus had turned the stones into bread, he would not have sinned. 
It just would have shown that he was hungry. The test here is that Satan comes to Jesus and puts a good idea into his head and says, hey, one of the chief evidences that all of humanity is not in the garden and is suffering in the wilderness is the existence of homelessness and hunger. You have power, don't you? You can turn stones into bread. Well, why don't you just go out there into Jerusalem and start transforming every rock into loaves of bread and start handing food out to every hungry person in Israel and then to the ends of the world, and then you would see a huge following come after you. Not an unrealistic option. In fact, in John's gospel, chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And you know what the crowds do as soon as they see what he can do with the loaves? It says they wanted to take him by force and make him king. By force. Hey, here's a bread maker. Bread falls from heaven with this guy. Make him the king. Let's go take down the Romans and let's just go take over the world. And Jesus was not about to go that way. It says that he slipped off before they could get him. Here's the devil's option. The good idea is, look, go and feed all the hungry. Pause. It's not wrong to feed the hungry. Jesus did. It's not wrong to help the homeless and the hurting. Jesus did. But what Jesus had to resist was that turning stones into bread would be the primary means of launching the kingdom of God on earth, of transforming the wilderness into the garden. What Jesus would not do is reduce human beings into bodies with bellies that groan and growl for food. Jesus would not reduce the human being into a body with a belly because he knew that before the body and the belly groaned for food or for shelter or for health, way before that, it was a soul and the soul was empty and craving and groaning and aching for acceptance, belonging and connection. And because it did not have those things, Many of the people have sought to grab resources and wealth and materialism to fill the soul's aching need. And as a result, they caused other people to be hungry because of their excess. And so, okay, let's say Jesus takes it and he says, kingdom here, boom, everybody has food and shelter and health. We would still have hunger and illness and homelessness. Because the original hunger that drove that hunger hadn't been filled. The soul needs bread before the body will forever be satisfied. That's why he says the word of God must be lived upon as well. Earth's problems will be solved by heaven's presence. Not by the baker's bread. And so... As we reduce human beings to human bodies, we then, it's very logical, make the next step to reduce these bodies, these people, into projects. Aha! 
So this is how many people want to use Jesus in the church. Let's go and feed people so that we can check off our accomplishment list and feel good about ourselves, make other people feel good, so Christianity is respected. The problem is we go and we bring our bread and we give people basically leftover choices and we give it to them and say, here, choose it for free. Yeah, and we feel good about ourselves because they feel a little bit better about themselves. And then we leave. Jesus came not to just help people physically and then leave. He helped them physically and then spiritually because he gave himself and stayed. If we want to feed the world, bread is good, but so is the giving of ourselves in relationship. People are not projects that I'm done. That's dehumanizing. People are persons who need relationship, who need love. Great idea number two, according to the devil, verse five. Then Jesus took, G, uh, then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, this Jerusalem, and sent him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, so knowing your mission, here's a method throw yourself down, for it is written, Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan quoting the Bible to tell Jesus, Hey, you could jump off the temple and God will come and rescue you. Think about how that will look to everyone. Temple is a busy place too, where the most religious people went. Then they would see God's hand is on this person. But Jesus in verse 7 says to him, quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The first great idea was bread. Second great idea is religion. Satan takes Jesus to the temple. This is the center of Israel's religion. And it's also the throne of the religious leaders. This is where the religious gurus did their stuff. This is where they fed their egos with the throngs of worshipers who came singing and giving offerings and making sacrifices. And these religious gurus would sit there and feel better about themselves because they have people that need them, people to lead, and they're getting rich and wealthy through the religious system. So Jesus is taken there to the heart of Israel's religion. And from the heart of it, he is tempted to jump so that you can use God to make you look really great in front of all these people. And then the religious leaders would say, wow, you are better than the high priest. That guy's human. I've seen him. You are the new high priest. And what an opportunity from that great position in Israel to lead the world into the garden. That's a really good idea. And in our humanistic thinking, our ego-driven selves, we're thinking, why not? Jesus, that's a great idea. Who is he quoting these Old Testament passages? Doesn't he know that's old? There's a new way of doing things. We 
we haven't changed much. Mike showed um, a great video, which was exactly, I didn't even see it until then. <laughs> what I was already thinking in my mind was, Jesus may not have taken this good idea, but the American evangelical church has. Celebrity pastors do whatever it takes to get best-selling New York Times best-selling books. We co- they become the self-help gurus to the world. Hey, listen to our good ideas. Our music's top-notch. Come hear our songs. We've got the best lighting. We've got the best state-of-the-art sound system. We've got stadium seating. Everyone, come and see what we're doing. God is really cool. Like, we may not be jumping off the temple and dazzling the crowds with him rescuing us right before we hit the ground, but we're doing that the best we know how through other things, trying to dazzle the masses as if we're bringing a, Las Ve- a Christian Las Vegas into the world. You know, the wilderness city, <laughs> Las Vegas. We're like, just, ooh, everyone, God is cool. And it's actually really cool to be Christian. You can bring your latte in and just kind of sit there and be like, yeah, this is pretty cool. I feel like I'm watching YouTube. You know, there's a big screen in the church and... There are some great hearts behind not anyone who's doing church this way is the devil. That is, do not overgeneralize. And God is using because he's merciful and he uses our sins and mistakes. However, I would suggest to you that that is the devil's way of doing ministry. Use God and use religion to feed insecure pastors' egos. That's why I see so many mega church pastors fall because they were not fit to feed people. They were feeding on people. Jesus was secure in who he was. I am the son of the father. He's well pleased with me. I do not need human applause. We put God to the test when we perform for human applause. That's what it means to test God. Our goal should be, as the old saying is, playing for an audience of one. That is what Jesus, that's the Jesus way. So Satan's idea number one, bread. Idea number two, religion. Third idea comes, verse eight. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Can you imagine the wealth and power in that one vision? And he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And I always thought, and of course, this was in my youth. Come on, Jesus, just do it. You could always repent. I didn't mean it. It was just my knee going to the ground. I didn't actually worship him in my heart. And there you go. Using whatever means, or using, you're letting the end justify the means, right? Whatever method to get the mission done. But think about this for a second. Is conquest, is the sword really God's way? Or is that me and my brute, man, barbaric, ego-driven way of thinking that's what Christianity should do? Conquer the world. 
you would never say this in church or out loud, but you know what? Just, just let the Muslims go away. It's about Christianity taking over the world. You also see Islam doing that thing too. Brothers and sisters, the devil uses force to conquer. Jesus looks at the kingdoms of the world and the sword is laying before him. And Satan's like, just use it. It's what Alexander the Great did. It's what Caesar does. Think back, Jesus. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and now the great mighty Roman Empire. You could be the next one. You could be higher than Caesar. It's very possible that Jesus could have done this. He said he had a host of angels at his command. Come on, boys. Peter, your wish, your dying wish is fulfilled. We're going to Rome and we're going to go fight those bad guys. Speaking of Peter, a little bit later in our gospel, Matthew, chapter 16, Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? A religious guy. And she's like, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, you are the Christ, the son of God. Same, same revelation Jesus gets at the baptism. You are my son. Peter sees, he understands what Jesus is about. But Peter does not understand how Jesus will accomplish that. Because when Jesus starts to say, this is how I'm going to accomplish this work. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me and spit on me and tear out my beard. And then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Peter then says, Jesus, come into my office. And they discuss this with Jesus, how this is a very bad plan, Jesus. Kings don't die. Kings don't get trampled on. Kings pull the sword out and lop off the head, for Peter, the ear, of whoever stands in the way. Kings win by the sword. They conquer. And then do you know what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. For you are not thinking the ways of God, but you're thinking the ways of man. And here Jesus is offered. You see how Jesus sees what Peter's up to? His top advisor in the whole system of 12 Not a good selection at first, but Jesus recognizes Peter's ideology because he had already faced it in the wilderness. Jesus already knew that method. He was already tempted with that method. And he said, I've already conquered that idea. There is a way, Peter, that is stronger than the sword. There is a way that is stronger than violence, more forceful than brute physical strength. The devil is resisted, not through force, force versus force, though God can triumph over the devil with force. His force is bigger than the devil's. But what we often don't think of, we just think of the same kind of power being used and God's power is greater than the devil's. It's a different kind of power, which is why it beats the devil's. The devil's coming this way with brute force and God undermines the entire system of the devil with selfless sacrifice, with unflagging faithfulness with limitless love. And that the devil cannot stand up to. That undermined his entire kingdom when Jesus died on the cross and it fell inward. And that's how Jesus conquers the devil without drawing a single sword. 
And Jesus looks at the kingdom and says, you know what? My mission is not to convert every single city in the U.S. and in Europe and in Asia to fly the Christian flag and to sing hallelujah praises. That day will come. But until then, my people are going to set up the kingdom the way it's meant to be set up. And it's not just a bigger, better way than Caesar's kingdom using the sword and violence and and manipulation and intimidation. It's through the complete reversal of that, again, that limitless love, that selfless sacrifice, that unflagging faithfulness, that putting people above programs about destroying religion rather than using it to elevate ourselves. Jesus puts the sword down as he asked Peter to do. Oh, in the garden, by the way, of Gethsemane. And he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Which means that whenever we choose violent options, we are worshiping the devil. Satanism isn't sitting around a Ouija board or other hocus pocus kinds of things. I'm not saying those things are fine. They probably shouldn't do those. But the worship of the devil is when we think that conquest is through the sword. And looked at that way, there's a whole lot more devil worship than we realize. And Jesus would say, I don't play that game. The sword is going to be thrust into me, not the other way around as I thrust it into my enemies. Well, they seemed like good ideas. Bread, religion, sword, But then the devil left him. Verse 11. Behold, angels came and were ministering to Jesus. The devil realizes this guy is actually following the way of God. (laughs) Israel didn't. I got them. Adam and Eve didn't. I got them. But this time, the wilderness is being defeated. How will Jesus lead us from wilderness to garden? It's not by multiplying bread for the masses. It's not by jumping off of temple buildings and asking God, using him to make us look spectacular. And it's not by drawing the sword and advancing violently. Instead, Jesus is going to lead us from wilderness to garden by giving himself as the bread of life. By saying this temple building will be destroyed and I will be the new temple. And the whole and only religion will be by meeting with me. And by putting the sword down and letting his enemies thrust it through him. These are the mind-blowing ways in which Jesus says, I will then through these methods lead humanity from wilderness to garden. So for us tonight, I need to call us to fantastic, impossible, apart from God, patience. Because these tests are hard. And at the very first test, you're hungry and you're saying, why not turn stones to bread? And in the wilderness, you just want out. And at the first test, you're like, all right, let's do it. Sounds like a good idea. Patience. 
Jesus went slowly through the wilderness. And it, for us, it may not be one, it may not be two, it may not be three tests we're put under. It may be many more, as many as God sees necessary to get the Egypt out of you, to get the wilderness out of you, so that when we get to the garden, we aren't just going to bring the filth in with it. He's in the business of transforming us on the way. Like in the Wizard of Oz, how all the characters following Dorothy had the thing that they needed and wanted transformation in. And they kept looking at Oz as the place where it will happen. And you know what happens when they get to Oz is they find out that they already got the thing they wanted by the journey that they took. And that's what God's doing. He's giving us courage. He's giving us a heart. He's giving us brains, so to speak. As we go, he's, he's putting us in situations as those characters were. He's putting us in situations in which we are forced to rely on God to be what we're not. And in the process, he's growing into us the garden. These are not just physical geographical places. I'm in the wilderness. Sunday, I'll get to the garden. This is who you are. I am wilderness. I am becoming garden. It's going to take patience. Gardens aren't just plopped into your life. Here you go. You're full of love, joy, peace, etc. Right now, boom. Come forward and I'll do the Holy Spirit prayer on you. It takes time to grow it. We're like, "I, I feel all these things. And then tomorrow we don't feel them. I love somebody today. And then tomorrow we slandered them. Two steps forward, one step back. It's patience because it takes time to grow. This is good too. Do not, please do not race through the wilderness. Those who tear out of the wilderness trample the garden. When we rush out, we ruin the very fruits that were given to us. We have to learn to tread gently and carefully and listen to God. See, every temptation that the devil gives us is really, in a nutshell, a shortcut, a method of ease. Here's an easier way to do this Christian thing without pain, without struggle, without growth. Jesus took none of the shortcuts. We're tempted to. Here's a quote I ran into, which is really good. Henry Nowen said, what makes the temptation of power so... uh, Let me restart that. It's a question. I wasn't reading it that way. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. So lest we tear through the wilderness and trample the garden, here's what we need to do. Go fast to slow down. I don't mean speed up. I mean go fast as Jesus did. He fasted 
from food for 40 days. If you, I don't encourage 40 days. Four hours. What happens? My body feels weak and it becomes much more susceptible to ease, to the ideas of the devil. That might sound like a bad thing, but it's not because it's when I'm weak and in that state that I'm most alert to the path of ease. And I see it as the devil's path rather than God's path. But Jesus doesn't just fast bodily, physically. He fasts spiritually. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. The wilderness is a vast, open, barren place where we can clear our mind and our heart. And it's there in the openness that we suddenly become more open to God. You see, we are so often used to finding our worth in the things we associate with. My accomplishments, the badges I wear, my connections, my credentials. These are who I am. But in the wilderness, we step away from those things. We detach from them. And we see who we really are alone, not defined by those things. And that's when I begin to realize I'm a child of God with whom he is well pleased And it's as I'm there that I begin to realize people are not projects to please God through. They're persons to love. Religion is not a platform for me to perform on or God is not a genie for me to call on and use. It's actually a grave for me to die in. The sword is not a weapon for me to defend myself with and attack others with. It's actually the instrument of following Jesus to the cross with. Getting away from media, whether it's the news, some of you need that. Maybe less of you need Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. But some of us need to get away from that a little bit. Find out who we are apart from it. Entertainment. The wilderness. Two ways to fast right there. How do we slow down? Go fast. That will teach us the patience to let Jesus lead us from wilderness to garden. Jesus invites us to go with him. Will you? I pray so that by Easter, we will be feeling the transformation of God's love in and through us.